Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. On today's show, we're going to talk about how the Orioles finally broke a 19-game long losing streak, how the Yankees are on fire, how Wander Franco looks like the real deal. We're going to check into some Cy Young poll results, looking to the next 500 home run hitter after Miguel Cabrera, and end our show as we usually do with rants and raves and guys that you should know. Matt, first of all, thank you and Will Leach for holding down the podcast while I was on vacation last week. I listened to the beginning of it. It sounds like you guys had a great deal of fun. I was watching the Orioles game last night because they went into this game on a 19-game losing streak. And, you know, it's funny, because of where we work, we are... We are not allowed to wager on baseball. It's like a big no-no. And I've had friends and family say to me, oh, that's that's too bad. You know a lot about baseball. You know, you, you do really well at it. And I'm always like, eh, I'm not actually sure that's true. Baseball is a really weird sport from day to day. And I think there's no better example of that than the Orioles taking a 19-game losing streak into a game started by Shohei Otani and breaking the 19-game losing streak with a 10-6 win. It was their first win since August 2nd. Let's listen to the end of that game real quick. David Fletcher, no easy out. All the frustration of the last 19 games. Should do it. Santander backing up. He's there. He's got it. For the first time since August 2nd, we can say the Orioles are winners. So that's fun. Good for the Orioles. Good for their fans. Matt, how long did you think the streak was going to go for? When I saw Otani was pitching at least 20 games, but as you said, and as we all know, you cannot predict baseball. So um, I, I, in a weird way, I wasn't, you know, I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised because this seemed like, okay, that's baseball right there of, of, of a team that looks as bad as it can look going and uh, they didn't beat Otani, but they scored a few runs off him and Otani has been pitching. You, you wrote about this on the site today about Otani trying to contextualize Otani's season within history and how it, you know, could be debated as one of the best seasons of all time. And you pointed out, and Sarah Langs wrote about this earlier this week on the site, is that he's actually been pitching really well of late and hitting not nearly as well as he did in the first half of the season. So to see them, the Orioles go and I think they hit three home runs off of um, off Otani, and then they rallied against the uh, beleaguered Angels bullpen for, for an exciting victory. Yeah, I should point out that as we're doing the show, it is Thursday afternoon and the Orioles and the Angels are playing right now. Otani already has a leadoff home run. He is up right now as I'm talking, so I'm really trying to slow play it to see what happens in this plate appearance. But yeah, it's, you know, 
Otani has been pitching so well that the Orioles, you know, you don't want to say anything's 100% certain because clearly it's not they won, but it was hard to imagine a better matchup of, oh my God, Otani versus the Orioles. That's going to be great. Uh, inside baseball here is uh, I had planned to write about Otani and I was like, this is great. This is perfect timing. He'll do well against the Orioles and it'll look great. Uh, baseball. Sometimes baseball is the worst. The uh, The Orioles have been kind of a story um, for the last couple weeks, obviously because they have lost so many games. There's a lot of good and bad in this situation. Um, should we start with the good? The MLB pipeline farm system rankings just came out and they are rated number one. As you'd expect, that's kind of like a steady improvement. Last year, or excuse me, this year before the season started, they were rated number five. Last year before the season started, they were rated number 13. Before 2019, we didn't have full one to 30 rankings in, but Keith Law, who was then at ESPN, ranked them 30th. So that's nice. They're getting better. They have the best hitting prospect, catcher Adley Rutschman, who's number one overall, the best pitching prospect, Grayson Rodriguez, who's number eight overall. And considering just how dreadful and borderline unwatchable the product on the major league field has been, this is, I don't know, it's celebration, I guess, because yes, you have the number one overall farm system, but also you'd better because they haven't really done much on the field. Like It's good. Like you, You had to have gotten to this point. There's also some downsides to this. Last year's number two overall pick, Heston Kirstad, has yet to play a pro game due to myocarditis. Although last week, per Joe Trezza, uh, he actually began physical activity in Sarasota for the first time. So that's a step forward. Uh, Kevin Goldstein wrote about them at Fangraphs this morning and said, yes, Rodriguez is very good. But unfortunately, and I quote, not another slam dunk big league starter of any quality in the system behind him. Um, We are three years almost (laughs) into the new regime and, you know, this team is going to lose so many games. They're going to lose all of the games. Are you, I don't know, disappointed by the lack of progress? Or is this sort of where you thought they'd be? I think it's tough because you you obviously, it's easy to sort of look at the other teams that have done some version of this in recent years, this kind of total teardown, you know, whatever you want to call it. The Astros did it, you know, when Mike Elias, the, the Orioles current GM was in their front office and they were able to turn it around and become a really successful franchise. The Cubs did it kind of to a lesser extent and they obviously went on and, and won a World Series. The difference with the Orioles is the division that they play in, where they play in arguably the tough, consistently the deepest, not, probably not arguably, consistently the toughest division in baseball when you consider two big spending heavyweights in the Red Sox and Yankees, not to mention the Rays, and then also the Blue Jays, who have really become a pretty good um, organization in their own right. So it was always going to be hard for them to follow the same template of a team that was in the AL West, the Astros, and a team in the NL Central, the the Cubs. So to that extent, I always was going to measure, temper my expectations a little bit. But I do feel like they're considering all the losing that they've done. And I kind of think some of their losing has a little gone a little under the radar relative to the Astros. You know, they're going to become the first team since the 62 to 65 Mets to lose at least 105 games in four straight full seasons. I mean, the 62 to 65 Mets is not company you really want to keep. That was an expansion team considered by many the worst team in baseball history. And <laughs> wait, wait, a- wait, 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 wait. Can you explain that for a second? Four what? straight seasons of 105 losses? In full seasons. Full seasons. I'm, not, I'm, well, I'm throwing three, out the 2020, 2020 season. Well, three straight, right? Because 18, 19, and 21. Then they do it in 17 too? 
No, they're seventy-five and eighty-seven and seventeen. Then I'm 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 wrong. I'm wrong. Maybe I'm I'm complaining. They're losing percentage. Either way, it's not, not great. It's, it's not great. I I apologize to them and to the and to the sixty-two to sixty-five Mets. But one thing I did want to point out that and you you alluded to this in your comment from um the, the point the thing the point that Kevin Goldstein made is that there was in a kind of a scathing piece in the Athletic. The Orioles beat reporter Dan Connolly kind of basically said, "I don't really believe in this rebuild." And it was a very pessimistic take, and it sort of assumed that none of the prospects will pan out. But one thing I found interesting is that how few pitchers the Orioles have drafted early in the draft. They've really basically punted pitching early in the draft. This is what he wrote. In the past three drafts, all under general manager Michael Elias, the organization has selected just four pitchers of the 28 players taken in the top 10 rounds. So they basically have not taken any pitchers at the top of the draft. And they're kind of banking on being able to find gems lower in the draft. So that speaks to what you're saying of how the scouting industry doesn't see them as having another slam dunk big league, big league starter of any quality in the system beyond Rodriguez. They have John Means, but he's already kind of, you know, he might be, a, be eligible for free agency by the time that they are ready to win again. So it definitely feels like even if this is going to work, they're still – a couple of years away and maybe more than a couple of years away. And I think that's, that's where you start to feel like after all this, they're still kind of a couple of years away. Not to mention, even though they're the number one farm system in our rankings, they only have two guys in the top 50. So it's definitely more of like a depth thing. So it does, it does feel like it's taking, I don't want to say too long, but too long. Well, you're right. I mean, sometimes you mentioned the Cubs and the Astros and sure, but a lot, sometimes this doesn't work. I mean, look at the Phillies. It is very much not working for the Phillies, what they've done. Not that they got to this kind of depth. I've sort of started looking at the, uh, the new Orioles, like the Orioles since they hired the new regime as an expansion team almost, because you got to remember they brought in the new general manager and the new front office following the 2018 season. Well, in 2018, they lost 115 games. So it's not like he came in and tore down a great team. And as we said, you know, Keith Law had rated them as the worst farm system that winter, you know. So if you have a team that was already dreadful and you have a farm system that was barren, that's an expansion team. And, you know, I, I know you had mentioned the uh, the early Mets. That's kind of what this feels like. That's what you're doing coming in. Now, I think if there's a failing, it's, you know, there are ways to improve the on-field major league team in ways that don't require massive free agent contracts. I mean, look at the Giants to some extent. You know, obviously they still have Posey and, and Crawford and these guys that they had, you know, on large contracts from years ago, but they've been fantastic at turning, you know, under the radar guys, including Mike Jastrzemski, who came from, wait for it, the Orioles into big league, comp- uh, you know, contributors. They haven't really done that. I guess Cedric Mullins has broken out and John Means has looked pretty good, uh, but they just, they have not been able to find enough competent major leaguers. Like it, it shouldn't be that, I don't want to say not that hard, but you should be able to build a 95 loss club. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be to this extent. Cause I agree with you. This is going to take a while. Um, and I think a lot of that is just because of what was left over. You know, the, uh, the 2012 to 16 Orioles had the most wins in the American league, fourth most in baseball. They have the most losses since then. And part of that is because they really botched the Manny Machado trade. They didn't get anybody useful for him. They didn't get anybody for Zach Britton. They all but ignored international scouting for years. So I think you can both look at this team and say it's not good enough and it's not acceptable because that's true. And also remember, they basically started as an expansion franchise two years ago. We will take a quick break and we will come back and talk about the Yankees and Wander Franco. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll stick in the American League for a minute, American League East. Have you noticed, because of course you have, the Yankees have an 11-game winning streak. They have the best record in baseball in the second half, 28-9. and nine. And it's actually not a recent thing. Since starting 6-11 and 11 in April, their record is 68-41. and 41. That's the third best record in baseball behind the Giants and the Rays. Matt, you and I both live in New York, so we're a little more exposed to the Yankees and maybe other people around the country. How many times did you hear people just calling for Aaron Boone to be like shoved off the top of the Empire State Building? Because <laughs> I feel like it's a lot. He might get, he might get manager of the year support this year. <laughs> There were definitely moments where it felt like he might get fired in season. I'm not sure if that ever actually was going to happen, but it was starting to get that kind of that kind of vibe. You know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I talked about this with with Will Leach last week. I always believed that they were better than they were showing and that they would remain in the wild card race. I didn't think that they would give a, the Rays a run for their money, and they're doing that. No, they really are. I mean, part of it is that the Red Sox have just completely collapsed, which has made a little bit of room in the East. But it's kind of funny to think about all the different ways in which the Yankees have changed themselves. And I want to give like the appropriate amount of credit to the guys who have come in, like the lesser known guys, uh, you know, Greg Allen and Andrew Velasquez, and they've come in and added athleticism and defense. And I think that's true. And I think it's fair. And I also think they get maybe a little bit too much credit because it's not like, you know, Giancarlo Stanton isn't destroying baseballs right now. He's slugging 613 in August. Uh, Jameson Tyon was not very good for the first two months of the season. And then he made actual changes to his curveball. It's been fantastic for the last two months. You know, Garrett Cole got past the whole, will he be, you know, mediocre or not as good because of the whole spin stuff. He's been fantastic too. And they traded for Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo. And even though Gallo hasn't done that much lately, he has been uh, a huge improvement in terms of their defense. I mean, Rizzo too. That was the problem with the early Yankees is they were slow and right-handed, and they weren't a great defensive team, and they're better now. And I hate to say it, part of it is because Glaber Torres hasn't been playing shortstop for the last couple of weeks. And if you look at Fangraph's uh, base running stats, in April, the Yankees were the worst base running team. And in May, they were 28th. And in June, they were 29th. And in July, they were 15th. And so far in August, they're fourth. They're actually running a little bit. And I don't think it's some like massive managerial sea change from Aaron Boone. I don't think he decided to start quote unquote, making things happen. I think he got different players who could actually do those things. You're not hitting and running with Gary Sanchez. <laughs> like you're <laughs> not. It just doesn't work that way. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out, I think this happened while I was on vacation last week. So <laughs> Luke Voigt basically came out and said, uh, I'm too good to be sent down. Like I deserve to be here. I led the majors in home runs last year. And I feel like people lost their minds about that. Like, oh, who's this guy? He's done nothing all year. And obviously he's been right. He's been incredible and he's been fantastic. And he's been hitting leadoff sometimes, which is like my favorite thing. I mean, on the Yankees, like this lineup is for real. Uh, they're getting a, you know, their bullpen is still questionable, but I like the, I like the rotation and I don't think they're going away. And if you look at the end of the season, the final week of the season in early October, Yankees and Rays, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. All they need to do is get it down. I think they're what they're four, they're four games out now. All they need to do is get it down to, get it down to three and you got yourself a series and it feels likely that that will 
that will happen. One thing I think that's that's interesting. You, you mentioned um, Gallo not doing much. Neither Gallo or Rizzo has done much for the Yankees. A big part of the narrative was like, oh, their turnaround came after the trade deadline. And while I do think there's something to be said by having some formidable left-handed hitters in your lineup to break up the righties for late-game situations, and that actually kind of changes the way teams manage against you, I think that actually does give them some some benefit from a strategic standpoint. Joey Gallo on the Yankees is hitting 143, 308, 345. Anthony Rizzo is hitting 200, 311, 380, which is, I guess, kind of respectable from an OVP standpoint, but he's not really hitting the ball. So... The one thing I would say is that given their track record, I actually would expect those guys to start hitting at some point. And the fact the Yankees have played so well, despite the fact that th- th- those guys aren't doing anything, they should be well positioned that even when, you know, maybe Stanton cools off or, you know, someone else cools off that, that, that Rizzo and Gallo should be able to lift up and, and fill, fill, fill some of that void. Rizzo is getting such a huge pass because of first impressions, right? He joined the team in Miami at the end of July and the first game he had a home run and they won three to one. And then in the second game, he had a home run and they won four to two, you know, tight games. So those home runs had a massive impact. And then obviously he's ended up missing some time with, uh, with, was it COVID? I can't remember, but he was out for a while. And um, in August so far, he's hitting 133, 212, 200. <laughs> and I just don't feel like people are perceiving him in that way. Obviously, he's he's still a good fielder, and he's more talented than that. And I agree with you; he'll come around, and Gallo will come around. But yeah, I feel like there's too much narrative about these two guys saved the season. That's not really true. There's too much narrative about we got more athletic and hungry or whatever. A little true, and not enough narrative about the fact that the guys who are there are playing better. Like Tyler Wade out of nowhere has been pretty good. Stanton's been phenomenal. Jordan Montgomery's been, been Jordan Montgomery's been really good. I was gonna say the starting pitching has been really good. You know, Luis Heel came up, and he was like. Awesome. You know, as I said, Tyon's been better. Heaney was not great, although I think his last start uh, was actually pretty good. And so I don't think the uh, I don't think the narrative and credit are going to the right places here. And so, as I said, they are in a, a pretty close race or getting there with the Rays. Do you think anybody's noticed how fantastic Wander Franco has been? He was the consensus number one overall prospect in baseball when he first got called up about two months ago. And it just wasn't that great to start with. In his first 120 plate appearances through the end of the Yankee series on July 27th, 220, 283, 349. Have you noticed that since then, almost exactly a month since they started a series against the Red Sox on July 28th, 341, 396, a 591 slugging with a 987 OPS. If you were to look at the best players in baseball, the best hitters with at least 90 plate appearances since the start of that Red Sox series on July 28th, he is sixth best in baseball. Uh, two of the guys ahead of him are Harper and Stan. Okay, fine. Uh, CJ Cron is on like the best heater of his entire life, which is not going to last. Dansby Swanson is having this like weird post type breakout. And also, I said this list for a reason. Ahmed Rosario, I've been talking about for years. I'm not out on Ahmed Rosario. And then Wander Franco, who is 20 years old. He has a 26 game consecutive on base streak. Do you know who the last player under 21 with an on-base streak longer than that was? Frank Robinson, the Hall of Famer, who got 43 straight games in 1956. Isn't it fun when a guy kind of just lives up to the hype (laughs) so quickly, even if it took, oh no, five weeks. Oh, I can't believe it took so long. He looks amazing. (laughs) One thing that's interesting about the Rays, and I I think about this actually kind of in context of the the Orioles, is I, I think, in you know, I think it's really hard to build a dominant team without having like, you know, one of those guys in the middle of your lineup or two. And like pretty much all the dominant teams have a couple of them. 
Um, and this is one of those things with the with the Orioles when I think of like who's going to be that guy, right? And I think like is Adley Rutschman really going to be that guy? It's, it's really hard for a catcher to be that middle of the lineup anchor that – and maybe he will be, you know, like – you know, Joe Maurer did it for a while. Mike Piazza did it for a while. But, like, you don't see – Buster Posey did it for a while and is kind of doing it again. But, like, it's not common for that type of player. And the Rays are, in some ways, to me, are a bit of an outlier because they don't – they've been able to have consistent success without a Juan Soto, without an Acuna, without a Mookie Betts, without a player of that, that that sort of, like, position player where the kind of guy you fear when you're going through the line of, like, uh-oh, is this guy coming up this inning? Or like, oh, shoot, how are we going to get through this inning? The Rays haven't really had that player on a year in Europe. But he says they kind of have guys who come in and play that role for a year. Like maybe last year was Austin Meadows. But like year to year, you're not like, oh, Austin Meadows, I'm building my team around that guy, right? right. Where if Frank Franco is that guy, it feels like he could be that guy. And so like the the, the Rays are going to have that depth around him, which what makes them so great. And then also suddenly put put in the middle of the lineup one of those like, uh-oh, how are we going to game plan around this guy? And I think that that's really dangerous and really fun. I got a great question for you, and you're going to hate this because I'm going to put you on the spot, and there's not really an obvious answer. Who starts game one of a Rays playoff series? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, Tyler Glasnow's injured, right? Tommy John, he's not coming back. Rich Hill got traded. Who else? Where are we? we? (laughs) I know the answer, but I want to know if you know the answer. Um, Ryan Yarbrough, <laughs> Ryan Yarbrough, maybe, but I think a lot of the teams that in the American league, he might end up facing would be right-handed heavy. Um, otherwise I would agree with you. Is it Shane McClanahan yes. or do you, or do you opener game one of the division series? You could, I was going to say, Andrew, I was going to say maybe Andrew Kittredge. <laughs> I mean, here's the guys who have started for them, uh, over the last 10 days or so, uh, Yarbrough and McClanahan. Okay. Luis Patino. Uh, Chris Archer finally came back. Michael Waka, uh, Lewis Head, Colin McHugh opened a game. Drew Rasmussen actually had like a half decent start. Josh Fleming. I, I guess the answer is McClanahan is a starter and everyone else like is a three and a third innings kind of guy. But I don't know, even for like the Rays, that approach seems like it's going to be just peak Rays unless you see another strategy here. <laughs> No, I, I think I think McClanahan seems right. Your point about about um, the um, the ready nature of, of some of those lineups makes sense. I mean, obviously Yarbrough would get a start in a series, but probably not would would not be uh, would not be game one. Oh, I can't wait to see that. All right, speaking of starting pitchers, uh, we here at MLB.com did a Cy Young poll uh, amongst all our writers. I took part in it, and um, Matt, you've got the results, and I think is interesting in both leagues for me is that there wasn't necessarily like an obvious no doubt about a guy. You look at some of the other awards, like, yes, Otani is going to win the American League MVP. If Tatis stays healthy, he's going to win the National League MVP. There's not an obvious pitcher. Like, there's not a you absolutely will vote for this guy pitcher because DeGrom has been injured so long. He's not really in the mix for me anymore. Uh, where do you want to start? American League? Like, it was confusing, I think. Yeah, can, I, I'll admit that I th- when I was, I was doing my American League um ballot for this for this fake thing which will be the full results will be published on mlb.com on uh, on thursday night when i was doing my fake ballot ballot i went to american league and i went to qualifiers and i actually think it was right before lance lynn made his most recent start and he actually 
fell off the qualifier list for a start because he's at only like 100. He's at like after he pitched seven innings, I think yesterday or the day before, he's at now at 130. So he actually was below the threshold, so he didn't show up. And so I think I left him. I mean, I think I left him off my ballot. And I was looking at the list, but it's still like not the most. Because I was like, I'm, of course, I'm only going to vote for someone who's qualified for the for the ERA, ERA title. Um, so the results are Garrett Cole first, um, getting the most first place votes, followed by Lance Lynn, followed by Robbie Ray, followed by Chris Bassett and Shohei Otani. So it's really, I think, going to come down to Cole versus Lynn. Um, it's kind of amazing that Robbie Ray is where he is, and he's going to be a fascinating free agent case this offseason, I got to say. But that maybe that's a conversation for, for a different time. I kind of feel, to me, Cole is kind of just, is the guy. I mean, I know Lynn's got a lower ERA, but um, Cole has a little bit of an advantage in innings and he's, he's, he's my pick. What do you think? I went with Cole number one and I didn't feel great about it, but if you look at his stats, I mean, the first thing I always look at, you know, aside from innings is usually uh, strikeouts and walks. Like there's more to life than that, but that just is always the first place my eye goes. And if you look at Cole, 191 strikeouts and 30 walks is a pretty good place to start. Yeah. A little mid season blip with the spin stuff that hasn't really, I'm sorry, stuck. Uh, he's been really good. And I could see an argument for Robbie Ray. I could see an argument for Lance Lynn. I mean, I just don't know how you get above Cole unless you're like all in on ERA and nothing else, in which case you'll probably go for Lance Lynn because he's got a 220 ERA and Cole's at 292. But as you said, Lynn has fewer innings. He's got fewer strikeouts. He's got more walks allowed. He's been very good. Um, the guy I think I would make a bit more of a push for who I don't think I included in my top three. And now I kind of regret a little bit. Well, two of them really Carlos Rodon. It was been awesome, but he just has pitched even fewer innings. Robbie Ray has been great. Like he's been phenomenal all year long. I agree with you about his free agent case for, for very different reasons. The two free agents I'm most interested in this winter are him and Javier Baez. Cause I, I think the, uh, the perceptions of what you know Baez might want are wildly different than I think the way teams might value him. And Ray kind of too, even though he's having a great year, I don't think he's going to win. Um, I do think Cole's going to win. I think Cole's going to win. And after that, it's going to be kind of a mess. Uh, I appreciate that somebody, I guess I don't know how our voting system works here, if you did this with points or not, but somebody put in Zach Greinke as one of their top three pitchers. And I don't think I totally agree with that, but I respect uh, that somebody is out here watching Zach Greinke. That wasn't you, was it? It was not, but uh, he cr- he crossed my mind. But uh, he because uh, because because the innings, he's like he's. I think he leads the American League innings. Yeah. The American League is only going to have like twenty ERA qualifiers this year. Yeah, that's a separate <laughs> conversation too. By yeah, the way, a- like we should just we should not have that as the qualifier anymore. Just as a sport, that should be a different <laughs> thing now. But yeah, exactly. So, but uh, yeah, no. Um, that's that the argument for Granky is is that that in a, in a, in a, and I, I wouldn't put him over I could see putting him on the lower da, lower on a ballot um, and the argument being that like in this era just quality innings are at such a premium having a pitcher who can lead the league in 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 innings while having an above average ERA is extremely valuable um, so I, I don't I could I, like him getting a down ballot vote doesn't uh, make sense to, it makes sense to me and it for those wondering it's we basically asked our our staff and I think there were a total of 65 voters between reporters and editors um, to rank three people and it was like five three one um, for, five for first place vote then three then then one point yeah, uh, in the National League straw poll, actually, I want to ask you about a, a tweet I saw you make. Did you say that Zach Wheeler's start yesterday was like a start right out of 1987 or something? Like From that? the 1970s, it was like <laughs> he, he pitched into the ninth and ended up giving up three runs in the ninth. So it was like eight innings pitched, seven runs, ten strikeouts, no walks. 
And like, I, it's, I mean, it's so rare to see. He'd already given up four runs, I think, entering the inning. So it wasn't like he was quote unquote dealing, but just the state of the Phillies bullpen and Joe Girardi's faith in him that like, that was, the, that he was given the treatment that, that kind of ace pitchers of the seventies, eighties and nineties used to get. You haven't, you don't see pitchers getting that kind of treatment anymore. They, yeah, the Phillies are absolutely desperate. Okay. On my top, when I did this, I think my top three were easy to get to. Like I knew who the three were going to be, but I could be. I could be convinced about the order of them. And I actually don't remember what order I did, but I think I put Walker Bueller first and Wheeler second and maybe Corbin Burns third. I know it was those three. I don't remember the order. And I think Corbin Burns is going to get hurt a little bit because of lack of innings. So Wheeler is at 176 and two thirds. Bueller is at 169 and Burns is at 133. But he has been so good, like disgustingly good. And 133 innings, he'll get to, I don't know, 150 something. Even though he hasn't been quite as good as DeGrom, DeGrom is stuck at 92. And I think he will be stuck at 92 for the rest of the year. That's that's not enough innings for me. Burns has been really good. And I just feel like he's not going to get the credit he deserves. He is a 165 FIP fielding independent pitching. Um, I still think Wheeler, uh, Bueller is going to win. Even though his underlying numbers aren't quite as strong, like he has fewer strikeouts than any other guys. His walk rate is good, but not great. And yet he's got a 202 ERA. And if he ends up throwing 190 innings with an ERA around two, I just don't see how he's not going to end up winning because he's probably also going to have like 17 and four record. Bueller almost seems like, and I think I put Bueller first, although if I actually had a ballot, I have to think, I mean, I would think long and hard about this. And obviously, you know, just, even just last night, Brandon Woodruff threw a gem and sort of one really fully put himself back in the conversation. He put himself on the perfect, he's still, it's, there's still a path for him to win. But I think right now the, the, the top three, as you mentioned, are Bueller, Wheeler and Burns. I voted Bueller. Uh, I think I went Bueller, Wheeler, Burns in that order. And Bueller's kind of the compromise candidate because he has almost as many innings as Wheeler, and he has an ERA. He actually has the lowest ERA of the bunch. Granted, he has a a two thirty six batting average on balls in play, which is a little bit of an outlier, even by the standards of a dominant pitcher. That's why his his fielding independent pitching is actually is higher than uh, the highest of the three, despite having the lowest ERA of the three. So there's maybe a little bit of quote unquote luck there, for lack of a better lack of a better term. But I think he will end up re- winning for the reason you mentioned. The record's going to be impeccable. He'll have the innings pitched. And it does seem that Wheeler hasn't, I mean, they haven't been like stinkers, but he's had a couple of tougher outings recently. And it's partially that's because, you know, like last night, they're asking more of him because the, <laughs> Joe Girardi has no faith in the Phillies bullpen. Nor should he, <laughs> I should say. I don't even think he's wrong. It is kind of funny if you just think about the way a lot of baseball fans want to see baseball played. You want to see that dominating starter getting the chance to go further into a game. And then what happened? <laughs> um, our third topic in our middle section here, Miguel Cabrera did reach 500 career home runs. And congratulations to him. He's actually added on one since. So he's at 501. I think I said a couple of weeks ago on the show that I had like predicted the date he would do it. And I was five days off. Couldn't have given me that. That would have been super fun. This doesn't necessarily, I don't know, it's cool. Obviously, like 500 is cool. It doesn't really do anything to change my perception of Miguel Cabrera's career. Like he's been an obvious inner circle slam dunk Hall of Famer for six years now, something like that. Like there's not anything else he can do. I don't think 3000 hits is kind of the same way. Like it's cool, but it doesn't gain him any Hall of Fame votes that he wasn't already going to get. And since, you know, he's got the 500 now and Pujols obviously has all these numbers too, people kind of want to know who's going to be the next guy to do it. The only guy who's really close in any way is Nelson Cruz. And he's a tough one for me to uh, 
kind of evaluate. The first thing I, I was thinking about Cruz, so he's at 443 right now. There is nobody else who's going to be hurt more by the COVID season, the 60 game season of last year than Nelson Cruz, right? Because he hit 16 home runs after like six years in a row of hitting like 38. So that probably cost him 25 home runs. And I think he's going to fall just short by a margin of less than 25 home runs. I think he's going to do it. He's been defying, defying father time for a few years now. I, 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 I see the argument against, but I just, this is, this is a gut feel um, that he will, he will, he'll get there. I'll need to play till he's 44, but I think he's going to do it. I think this really depends on the National League getting the DH next year. Like what do you he mean he's a first baseman now? Look at him making oh, picks at come first base. On. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I was thinking when I saw that? Like, aside from, oh, hey, cool, was uh, I know everybody thinks first base is easy. I'm not going to make the money ball joke here, but I do remember Jock Peterson trying to play first base and it did not go well. <laughs> it is not easy to play first base. Hey, I hope he can do it. Um, I, I think he's going to fall just short. I mean, don't get me wrong. I hope he gets there. You know, you think about some of the other guys like, Giancarlo Stan is two thirds of the way there. What is stopping him other than just being healthy? He's got seven more years on his contract. He is almost guaranteed. Mike Trout, assuming that his calf is still attached to his body, which I guess it probably has to be, he's going to get there easily. Like he was crushing the ball this year before he got hurt, even by his own standards. But here's what I keep thinking Cruz is the only guy with a chance to do it in the next five years. Right. And if he doesn't, we are at least six or seven years away from anybody doing it. Yeah, that feels right. Because I mean, Stan would still need to average like 30 for six more years to do it. So, yeah. And he's probably not going to average 30 for six more years. So, um, Stan seemed like a stone cold lock like three years ago. Um, I'd probably put Trout's, I think I'd put Trout's odds ahead of his, although Trout's has probably been missing missed as much time as Stan in the last couple <laughs> <Really>? of years. <laughs> um, so, uh, of like, who would you say is the the biggest lock of players? Trout. You think Trout's the biggest lock? Yes, because listen, I don't think he's a center fielder much longer. He might not be a center fielder at all if Brandon Marsh is their guy next year. So if he spends the next four or five years playing, you know, left or right or whatever, and then a couple of years after that is the DH. I mean, I have no doubts about his bat. Like there hasn't been anything in any of his performance so far that says his bat is aging. Right? His defense is down. His health is down. The bat is still fantastic. Trout is absolutely going to get there. Um, I think that I think I, I think I agree with you that I take him over. Um, I take him over over Stanton. What about like a uh, Harper and Machado? Who do you think of more? I mean, they're, they're they have surprisingly good good cases. Well, uh, but I'm not. It's it's a little deceiving. Yeah. So here here's the problem I had when I was looking through this. Right. So like. I think Trout's going to get there. I think Stanton's going to get there. I think Harper and Machado are going to get there. I think a lot of the the young guys we always talk about, like Acuna and Tatis and Vladdy, will get there. And I kept coming back to the ideas. I can't really say they're all going to get there. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, I think Harper's going to get there. He's been great. You know, he's he's already more than halfway there. He's still only 28 years old. He is slugging way better as a Philly than he did as a national outside of that one great year. And he's playing in a great ballpark to do it. Machado is the guy who's interesting. He was like my sneakiest. Oh, I'm surprised at myself for saying I think he's going to get 500 home runs. Because if you go back to the the shape of his career, you know, for the first like 1200 or so plate appearances, he was more of a, a doubles guy. You know, that the power didn't really blossom until after that. He had hit 30 or more home runs every year from 15 to 19. He would have done again last year. If he does it again this year, he'll have six home runs, uh, six seasons of 30 homers. And only a handful of guys have ever done that by the time 
they end their age 28 seasons. I think he's going to get there. I don't think Judge will get there because he's older than people think. I don't think Gallo will get there because you got to make contact with the ball sometimes to hit home runs. Uh, but I think Machado and Harper both get there. What about the young kids? Who do you think of, of like Acuna, Acuna, Soto, Tatis, and Vladdy Jr.? Who do you think is the most the most likely of that group? Uh, Acuna. I think Acuna. So he's already got 105. I know he's hurt, right? But he's got 105 career home runs through age 23. Miguel Cabrera, through the same age, had 104 career home runs. And if you look at his slugging percentage through 23, we're talking like Frank Robinson uh, and Henry Aaron. I think Soto's going to get there. I'm a little worried about Tatis just because I worry about shoulder injuries a whole lot more than I worry about knee injuries that Acuna has, you know? So I actually think they all have excellent shots, but if I had to pick the most likely it's Acuna and the least likely it's Tatis. I agree with you on Tatis. Um, but my most likely is Soto. I just think he's got the, uh, the smallest for me as a hitter, he's got the smallest gap between his, his, uh, his floor and his ceiling. And I just, he just seems to, I have a hunch of him just being the most consistent. Well, maybe not as much, maybe not quite as much power on the high end as Acuna. I just think he'll consistently hit home runs for the next, you know, 17 years. Yeah. 17 years. Uh, people underrate his power, by the way, when he hits the ball in the air, his exit velocity is basically the same as judge and gallows, which you would not think about from Juan Soto. We will take a quick break and we will be back with a pair of guys that you should know more about. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to the Ballpark Conventions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to take a look at a guy each that you should know a little bit more about, maybe someone under the radar. And I think I have a good one today. Connor Joe, not Joe Connor, Connor Joe, first baseman outfielder for the Colorado Rockies just yesterday. This was great because I already knew I was going to talk about him. He hit a grand slam and he had a great catch. That was a 50% catch probability. So half the time that chance is there. It's not made. It looked like he might have gotten hurt, but he came back and hit a grand slam. In the late game, so far this year, he's hitting 292, 376, 500. He is a 125 OPS plus for the Rockies. He's really interesting to me because before this season, before he had this kind of breakout season, I knew him for like three different reasons at various points of his career. So let me explain why I care about Connor Joe. He was a uh, the 39th overall pick by the Pirates in the 2014 draft. And then he was traded to the Braves for Sean Rodriguez in 17 and traded to the Dodgers for international slot money, which is it tells you a lot about where you are at that point in your career when you're just getting traded for money. The next year, 2018, he was picked as a Rule 5 pick by the Reds. Then he was traded to the Giants. And this is where I first started noticing Connor Joe. He was part of the most cursed opening day outfield of all time. The Giants in 2019, their outfield, Connor Joe, Steven Duggar, and Michael Reed. Only Steven Duggar lasted more than like two weeks. Connor Joe got 16 plate appearances and was returned to the Dodgers where he raked in the minor leagues in 2019. Last year, unfortunately, he missed the entire season while dealing with a bout of testicular cancer, which it appears he's overcome, and he signed a minor league deal with the Rockies for this year. So I knew him because of the 2019 Giants opening day, and I knew him because I remember reading stories about his cancer scare, but he was extra interesting to me. 
Because after 2019, after Mike Talkman broke out with the Yankees and everybody's like, where did this guy come from? How could we not have known that this guy was going to be good? How could the Rockies not have known that? I tried to come up with some sort of formula where you break every rule in the book, which is basically you can't just scout the minor league stat line, you know, but I tried to do it anyway, just to see if there was any way we could have found Mike Talkman. And I came up with a thing that would have previously popped Paul Goldschmidt, Mookie Betts, Reese Hoskins, Max Kepler. And uh, very briefly, it was just a minimum of plate appearances, a minimum of slugging percentage, and a walk rate at least 80% as much as their strikeout rate. Why well, came up with four names? Trent Grisham, who's an all-star last year. Josh Rojas, who's having a breakout year for Arizona. Uh, Nate Lowe, who has been pounding the ball off and on for Texas. And Connor Joe, who is now having a great year for the Colorado Rockies. So I am personally invested in Connor Joe. And I'm just very happy that he's mashing the ball so that I can continue to tweet out a two-year-old article endlessly. Thank you, Connor Joe. Congratulations, Mike, for being right about this uh, two years ago. <laughs> Who do you have? Uh, my guy is a little, a little less under the radar, but is having a huge year in a way that I don't think is being fully appreciated enough. And that is Braves third baseman Austin Riley. When Ronald Acuna Jr. went down, a lot of people, including myself, were like, well, how are the Braves going to overcome the loss of Acuna? There's no way they can. They're like That's too big of a hole in their lineup. Well, Austin Riley is having an elite season, and it's finally living up to the hype that made him one of the top prospects in baseball a couple years ago. Riley hits one a mile toward left. He got a hanger. Riley will not miss it. It's in the stands, and the Braves are back in front. The two out homers are coming fast and furious in Baltimore tonight. 27th for Riley, and the Braves lead 4-3. to three. With a weighted runs created plus of 140, where 100 is average and anything above it is well above average, um, Austin Riley ranks 17th among MLB qualifiers and higher than Freddie Freeman, his teammate. He is hitting 300, 376, 534, and is 12th in the majors in slugging percentage. Now, some of this is due to a 356 batting average on balls in play, which is maybe a little fluky, admittedly, but he's drastically reduced his strikeout rate from 36% in his rookie year in 2019 percent uh, in his rookie year in 2019 to 24% this year, and also improved his walk rate from 5% to over 9%. One thing I noticed about him when, when looking at his baseball savant page, he's actually swinging at the first pitch a lot less this year. Now, often we see pitchers, but batters succeed by swinging at the first pitch more. Uh, but this year, he's actually swinging at it less than 35%, where he was above 43% a couple of years ago. Now, Riley, prospect heads might remember, was kind of a big big prospect a couple of years ago. He was the 41st overall pick in 2015 out of a high school in Mississippi. MLB Pipeline had him as the 38, number 38 prospect entering 2019. In his rookie year, he just struck out way, way, way too much, as I mentioned, more than 36% of his plate appearances in 2019. And it was like, well, he's never going to be able to get to his power if he swings and misses that much. Kind of reminded me of, of Will Middlebrooks, who was another prospect of recent vintage, third base prospect of recent vintage, who had a lot of power but just couldn't get to it. Recently, I heard an announcer comp uh, Austin Riley to Troy Glaus, which is a very generous comp, but he definitely kind of fits in terms of body type and just incredible power. Austin Riley has hit some of the most majestic home runs I've seen this year. The defensive metrics are not very pretty for Riley, but man, the Braves needed an impact bat, and he has been that and then some. I think he's going to get some down ballot MVP votes, and no one I feel like no one's really talking about him. Yeah, no, this is a good one. I remember when he came up two years ago, halfway through the season, and he had 18 home runs in 80 games. 
And you know, that's, that's impressive. You extrapolate that over a full season. And Brave fans were sort of going nuts about him. And I was not in because, you know, he had a 279 on base and he struck out 36% of the time. He was a below average hitter despite all that power. And last year, you know, obviously weird COVID year, he wasn't very good. Like the on base wasn't there. And even worse, the power was down. And then everything you said about him this year is right. Like I am honestly surprised that he is having this good of a season. He is maybe my number one example this year of confusing defensive metrics, I think, though. So StatCast's out above, outs above average, which obviously I'm heavily invested in, hates him. Minus 11 at third base. Defensive run saved says he's a plus seven. And usually there's at least directional agreement on this kind of thing, right? Like both metrics think Xander Bogarts is a lousy shortstop. I don't know if I've ever seen it this large of a difference. Uh, and to be honest, I, I don't know why. Uh, but good call <laughs> on Austin Riley. I like this one. Matt and I each like to end our show with a rant and a rave. I have a good one here, I think. Really, what's the point of having your own podcast with a segment dedicated to yelling about something if you can't be petty about it? So let's do that. How much baseball is exactly the right amount of baseball? Here's where this started. Last Sunday, I was watching the Cleveland and uh, Angels game, the Little League World Series Classic, right? Where they were playing in Pennsylvania at the Little League site. And it was cool. Like, I, I enjoyed it. You know, the kids were there and they were close. And I was honestly more interested in that game than I would have been if they were playing it in Cleveland. I didn't watch any of that series before. It was kind of the same thing about the Field of Dreams game earlier in Iowa. I didn't see a lot of it because I was on vacation, but I checked in a little bit. It seemed like it was great and super cool and everybody loved it. So I tweeted on Sunday during the the Angels game. This is what I said. There are 2,430 games in an MLB season. It's so many games, too many games. I'm all in on playing one-offs in different places like this or Iowa. Do one in Central Park. Do one in the Dominican and leave the field for the kids. Like, whatever. I think we can all live with only 2,425 games in regular parks. So I tweeted that. Lots of response, positive response. People are like, that's great. Do one here. Do one there. Do one in an old Negro League park. Awesome. I was shocked at how much pushback I got for the specific wording early on of that tweet where I said, it's so many games, it's too many games. Do you know how many people said to me, go cover another sport if you don't like baseball? (laughs) Why do you hate baseball? Why do you want there to be less baseball? And I'm thinking to myself, come on, guys, (laughs) what are we doing here? So if someone says to me, every game should be 26 innings, and I say, no, I hate that, Now, now I hate baseball. And this point was really driven home to me when the postseason schedule came out yesterday. If the World Series goes seven games, that's November 3rd. I don't like it when the season goes in November. I don't like when the season starts in March. I've actually been on the record as saying I'd be thrilled with going back to 154 or whatever we think. It doesn't mean I don't love baseball. (laughs) There are so many baseball games a year. I had... Anyway, that's my rant. I don't have an end to that other than just frustration. I love ice cream. I don't want to eat it for every meal. <laughs> right, exactly. How about that? Exactly. <laughs> um, my rant, I'm actually going to, I'm sort of going to, my rant is going to be, um, is, is going to be a quote from someone else, but it's, it's something that I've talked about a lot in this space in the past, just kind of ranting about the idea that um, today, just just talking about how today's players are so much better than we appreciate. And instead of like pining for the game of the past, we should appreciate what we see in front of it, in front of us. I was reading a Q and a, um, in the athletic, uh, with Melissa, Melissa Lockhart, Melissa Lockhart was interviewing uh, a A's assistant general manager, Billy Owens. 
And um, Billy Owens had this to say about today's ball player. In 2021, these guys are the best guys that ever played the game. They're the best athletes. These guys get bigger, faster, stronger every year. We would never say that, for example, Bob Cousy could card Steph Curry. But somehow in baseball, we act like dudes that played in the 1920s are, are as good as the guys playing today, which is just not true. I'm telling you guys in the 1930s couldn't guard Randy Moss, George Mikan, he couldn't guard Shaq. So it's the same way in baseball. I kind of agree with what Pedro Martinez said, that he could strike out Babe Ruth. Not to repeat, but these guys are bigger, stronger, faster, under more scrutiny. I mean, a guy has three hits in a minor league game now, and guess what? It's going to be all over the media. It's going to be scrutinized the next day. These guys are in the gym way better than we've ever seen before. The nutrition is better. It's exciting, but the challenges are greater. Even going back to when people harp on strikeout, the strikeout rate in today's games. Well, guess what? This game is way more difficult than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Guys are throwing 95 plus. They've got sliders that are 90 plus miles an hour. They've got changeups at 88 to 90. The fielders are way better. They know where you're hitting the ball from the data perspective. So they put, so they put the fielders there. So yeah, let's embrace how difficult, how challenging, how exciting, and how advanced these guys are playing today's game. And let's not look back to what happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. I figured it would have more weight coming from someone who has, you know, been the assistant general assistant general manager of one of the most successful uh, organizations in baseball. Billy Owens, I could not have said it better myself. I have several thoughts here. First of all, yes, a hundred percent, yes. Like that—that that is obviously true. Today's players are more talented and better. What? When did Pedro Martinez say he could strike out Babe Ruth? I ever since you said that, I have been furiously googling that. Because I think I remember Adam Adovino saying. Well, I was going to say Adam Adovino said it on this podcast, but I think yeah. Pedro Martinez, um, you know, uh, like many years ago, said like, you know, I'd strike out Babe Ruth and call him my daddy or something, and then it, he came back and was like, oh, and now the Yankees are now I'm, the Yankees are my daddy or something like that. Is that what it was? I guess I, I think like, I think it's I think I could be misremembering. I could be missing screwing something up there. Um, the point remains the same. It is, and to be clear, I don't doesn't mean I don't think that the the the, the way the game is played couldn't be. Um, change that there might be other ways to make the game more entertaining. Like that's not what I'm saying. Like to be clear, I just do think that the the skill of of the the, the modern player is still somehow often underappreciated. And I think that uh, Owen said it very well. Yes. If you ever want to annoy a football fan, tell them that like Dick Buckus or Ray Nitschke would be practice squad backups these days because everybody's so much bigger and stronger and faster. That's true in every sport. And it's definitely true in baseball. So I'm fully with you. I'm fully with Billy Owens on that because I, I thought that quote was uh, absolutely fantastic. And that was uh, from The Athletic as well. That'll do it from this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have a suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.